My name is Nathan Forster, and this is Deeper and Wider, a show where we meet at the crossroads of Christian faith and all of life, from the small to the big, from the mundane to the profound, where we learn people's stories and their specialities, have conversations, and offer perspectives, all of which are shaped and animated by Jesus, his way of life, and the kingdom he came to bring. This show will be a resource for people who, deep down in their bones, think that surely God's kingdom is deeper and wider than the box we have put it in, a kingdom that can permeate all of existence, if we allow it to. So welcome to Deeper and Wider. Welcome to this episode of Deeper and Wider. I am joined today by my dear friend, Matt Nash, who is the founder and president of the Cardia community over in the United States of America. Uh, Matt has served much of his ministry life in local churches as a youth pastor, associate, and also as a lead pastor. His family also lived in Rwanda for a number of years as missionaries, and whilst there, he was the professor of Bible and theology at Africa College of Theology. Since 2014, he has served as a global trained director for two different church planning organizations. He has also graduated with a Bachelor of Science from Multnomah University and also a Master's of Divinity from Rockbridge Seminary. And he is currently finishing his Doctor of Ministry in Transformational Leadership from Rockbridge Seminary. In his first doctrinal seminar, God gave him the vision to begin this wonderful community that he has started, Kadia Community. And it comes out of a lifetime of him serving in ministry and feeling like he was losing a bit of his own soul in pursuit of helping others with their spiritual formation. And so the community is to equip pastors and ministry leaders with spiritual practices to develop a lifestyle of healthy soul care and create intentional community of fellow leaders to build resilience for a lifetime of church-based ministry. And so I'm excited to talk with him today. And in particular, I guess this is more of an episode where we have a conversation together. And in doing so, we are dreaming, dreaming for a better way to be the community of the people of God in the world, or as some would say, what it means to be the church in these times we find ourselves in. So buckle up. It's, as I said, it's much more of a conversation than it is like my interviews I've done, bit of back and forth, and I'm really looking forward to you listening to it. So enjoy this episode of Deeper and Wider with Matt Nash. Welcome to the the, the podcast anyway, Matt. Um, Thanks, Nate. How long have we known each other for? I'm just trying to do the maths in my brain, how long we... <laughs> Okay, we've known each Since other. Since January of 2020 is when we met. Yes, that's right. Um, but I think we started connecting on Instagram about six months prior to that. I think so. It was definitely, yeah, because I managed to get to the to the US before, just before COVID hit. Um, in fact, I remember coming back from, I was leaving LAX and... There were, like, I was flying cafe, so it was going through Hong Kong. And one of the bartenders just discreetly, like, slides a mask 
over to me to wear on the plane. He's like, oh, you probably oh, need right. this. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I land in Hong Kong and I see all the connecting flights to mainland China. And like two thirds mm-hmm. of them are canceled, especially the ones to Wuhan. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, hmm, what's going to happen here? <laughs> and then yeah. lo and behold, lo and behold, yeah, COVID hit. So I managed to see you and meet you in person before. Right. COVID hitting and then you stumbled across me six months earlier. Do you remember how that happened? I'm just trying to think how, how that yeah, even happened. Yeah, Jonathan Martin uh, was our connection um, and you had been following his stuff and, and uh... you, knew, you know him and um, I had heard of him from another friend. Right. So we just started realizing that we were kind of posting and sharing about the same things and I think I just messaged you and said, Hey, this is, this is great. You know, your comment here or your post here. And then we found out that we just had a lot more mutual friends in common. Yes, that's right. I remember when you first started following me, there was a photo of, I'm not sure if it's just still your display picture, probably not. But at the time there was a photo of London bridge, I think in the background, or there was something very British in architecture. And I remember thinking to myself, Oh, this, this lad must be from Britain. (laughs) And it turns out, no, you're from the uh, never eat soggy wheat bix, the west coast That's right. <laughs> of the US. I was like, oh, there you go. Um, no, I wish I was from Britain. So, oh, I yeah. know. Yeah. I know. There are so many great thinkers. I think we both admire a lot of people from Britain, like, mm-hmm. of course, N.T. Wright. That's a big fan favorite of ours. Yep. Um, you're now, and you're a big, big fan of C.S. Lewis. Um, I am. I've yeah, gathered. C.S. Lewis and Jared Tolkien uh, probably have been the biggest influences on my faith and journey in life. Yeah. Wow. I, and they are very influential people, obviously for yourself and for many others. I know um, in Oxford, there's that bar. Do you know what that bar is called where they used to meet up at or the pub? I should yes. say. Yep. It's called what the Eagle it? and Child. Ah, the Eagle and Child. So we've both been there, I, I think, yes. haven't we? Cause you've been yeah. there. Um, had, did you have a chance to sit in their little corner booth as well when I you were did. there? Oh, nice, yeah. nice. I, I had to wait for um the bar to clear up <laughs> before, okay. before people were stumbling out, and I was like, here's my chance <laughs> to sit where they yeah. sat. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I've been there a couple of times. The first time that I was there, it was my wife and I, and we had lunch there, and, and she got up um, to go get uh, a glass of water, and an older gentleman started asking me about C.S. Lewis and what I liked about him, and I was telling him that mm. – um, I really loved his his deep uh, rational thought and how he intersected mm. that with his faith. Mm. And he kind of scoffed a little bit and, and snickered and said, oh, I, I think C.S. Lewis was too simple. And I said, ah, I think it was his simpl- simplicity, though, that made him brilliant. And he was mm. able to take real world things in nature, whether it was a train being late or somebody mm. disrupting you uh, on the tube in London or uh, somebody, you know, asking for a bite of your orange and then refusing mm. to give you a bite of theirs. Mm. And that's how he begins mere Christianity is th- that argument that mm. appeals to the law of human nature. Mm. Yes. Yes. Oh, what a great response as well. And and the way C.S. Lewis could articulate that to your stereotypical English person, Englishman, Englishwoman, especially in his context as well. He was... Um, delightfully earthy in how he engaged his faith. And yet, as you said, there was a, a simplicity to it, but that was a positive thing as opposed to a negative thing as it relates to 
kind of his life and his ministry. Exactly. Mm, mm. Yeah. Oh, no, so good. And you've been twice. I'm so jealous. I've been once. And um, fun fact, um, by pure accident, um, me and my dad, because I went with, with my dad and we were driving around the outskirts of Oxford just to have a bit of a look around. And we entered into an Anglican church and lo and behold, it was actually the Anglican church that C.S. Lewis used to attend. I'm not sure if you've oh, been Trinity. to that. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Yeah. And it was so remarkable. Like and I found this pew that he used to sit in. And of course yeah. the stained glass windows, they modeled one of them off the Narnia stories. Yep. And, and then I think there was also his gravesite um, out the back in the cemetery. Yes. Which, I was just like, wow, which felt, I'm not going to lie. It felt a bit weird getting a photo of me, right? <laughs> the sure. Stone. <laughs> yep. It felt but I did. Felt uh, the first time I did it. Yeah. Second <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like the novelty of like, oh, look, I'm, I'm where C.S. Lewis is buried. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and I think C.S. Lewis would, would even be quietly, um, quietly. I just made up a new word there. Quietly. I think he would be quite, uh, perturbed at mm. all of the uh, all of the hoopla that is yes. made about him and his life because he was just a really simple man he just he'd get up in the morning he'd mm. you know say his prayers he'd go out he'd make a cup of tea he'd eat yeah. a bit of toast he'd go teach he'd go to the pub for dinner he'd come home he'd be you know writing till the late hours of the evening and then go to bed mm. and he would repeat yes. The next day, the same thing, and um, he never liked uh, the attention that he got. He never liked um, a lot of the the hoopla that he even got mm. around Narnia, and uh, even some of his broadcast talks that ended up on the radio during the war. He did those um, just out of respect for you know the families who had had their mm. children shipped off to different places. He, in fact, hosted some children. Uh, from London and at the kilns during the war. Oh, and, really? I didn't um, know that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, he he just wanted to be kind of a calming, a calming mm. presence for people during the blitz and during the war. Yes. And, um, but he definitely was not interested in becoming a celebrity or famous mm. at all. He he was quite bookish. He liked his, mm. you know, his pipe and his tea and his books, and he was perfectly content uh, just to to live in Oxford all of his days, which he did. Yeah. After the war. And is isn't that an incredible? His life as an incredible witness of, I think, perhaps something that was missing in our society, as it relates to, particularly to to our Christian faith and. Um, in particular to the kind of the broad scope of church culture, unfortunately, at the moment. I, and I know America and Australia are different contexts, but we're both Western kind of Christianity context. Mm -hmm. And we've both seen, perhaps in different ways, but also with a, a lot and a lot of crossover, a lot of the celebrityism that has crept into Western Christianity. Absolutely. And yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you go. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the celebrity culture in the church has risen to a point that I've never seen it in my lifetime. Mm. And I've spoken with people that are 20 years older than me and they've never seen it in their lifetime. Mm. And it's just such a perfect cocktail of entitlement 
mm. and arrogance and um, hubris yes. to think that we have the corner on thousands of years of church history and thousands yes. of years of Christian history to think that the way that we worship, the way that we preach, the way that we um, create experiences for people on the weekends mm. that are more and more like NFL and NBA games, you know, for American mm. American football and American basketball games mm. or, you know, Australian rules football or cricket or yep. Yep. rugby matches where it's high energy and high flash and mm. lots of entertainment value and sometimes very little substance. Yeah. And I think the church really has to start paying attention to more of those things and try to get away from that celebrity mm. culture that has really poisoned the well. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, it's one of those things where it's almost that like we've pivoted too far to an extreme, like in the noble pursuit of trying to kind of connect with culture and bring down the four walls, um, which is a noble, a noble thing. And by four walls, I mean the, the image of, you know, not a church being a little, little, little club. But I think right. even though that's a noble pursuit, I think we've pivoted towards the other extreme whereby in the pursuit of trying to connect with culture, we've started to use, utilize the, the means of culture, um, things like 1950s marketing techniques or, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I'm not inherently against social media. Obviously, we both have a social media presence to some extent and we share things and, and the like. Um, right. But but it's become almost an ends as opposed to a, I, I would say, a very tepid and boundaried means, which I'm still learning. Like, I'm still learning how to be wise in my engagement. But it's certainly become more, church churches a lot in the West have entered into They've gone from trying to connect with culture to utilizing the tools of culture around things like influences or influence culture mm -hmm. or kind of the, 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 the hype and the over-topness. Yep. And this is going to sound a little bit cynical, but I, I want to riff with you on, on this, this little thought. Um, I've, I've gone and I've been part of churches where the music's really loud. Yes. It's really hyped up. And I'm not inherently against kind of contemporary expressions per se, but I do often go when it gets quiet, when things settle down, mm -hmm. is this, this substance of how we do in particular church services in these ways, would right. this be the substance that carries forth from that young person who might be excited by the, by the, the noise at 19, but would this person have a formation by the time they're 25 26 going on to their 30s like Absolutely. there's something that maybe connects to them on, on some some type of visceral level which i'm not inherently against i mean youth group days were very fun and and, sure. and uh you know it had its place but i don't know there's a sense in which i and i, I don't want to sound arrogant but sometimes i i do look and i go well i sorry i don't want to sound cynical but sometimes i do go what's the fruit of this where's this going to be right Right. Five years from now, what are we discipling people into? Because if it's just the noise, but then it's not the substance of a life that's seeking to be more formed in the simple ways that we find in people like C.S. Lewis. Absolutely. I mean, I spent, yeah. you know, 20 years as a youth pastor. And even when I began youth ministry, it was still very much, you know, one person with a guitar leading a few mm. songs on, um, 
an old, you know, um, machine. I can't even remember the name of it now. The the machine mm-hmm. that we basically make like a you use like a plastic sheet of paper and you know oh, hand yeah. write the lyrics on it. Yeah, and it was like an overhead machine. And yeah, you'd oh, put yes. the sheet yep. of paper on the overhead machine, and you'd have to slide it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always had a kid in my youth group that had to slide the. <laughs> the piece of plastic up so that the words that came next could be read. Yes. And that's how I began youth ministry. Mm. And I, you know, learned how to play guitar and I would lead, you know, in two or three songs. And my voice is not one that should be um, (laughs) um, (laughs) out there very much in in terms of good singing. My, my daughter always said, you're much better preacher than a singer dad. And, she said that at, at a young at a young age of eight years old, and um, and I laughed and I said, "You're right." Um, <laughs> but you know, my evolution with youth ministry was it went from being simple to being you know a full band, whether it was students or adults, mm. and you'd have to have giveaways and you'd have to have you know a <laughs> fog machine or extra lights on stage to get mm. kids to come. Yes. And yeah, it became much more about whatever was trendy, whatever was hip and cool at the time. Mm. And I just saw the formation of students go mm. down year after year after year. Yeah. And I never really bought into the flash in the pan youth ministry. And I see it in churches too, because typically most Western churches that are not high church in terms of liturgy mm. uh, usually start with an explosive a loud song that's really energetic to get people <laughs> on their feet and get them moving. And then the arc is that mm. as the songs go, they get a little bit slower and a little bit quieter <laughs> to get yes. you into a meditative mood Yes, for the sermon. Mm. And that sermon can sometimes either put you to sleep or just keep <laughs> you kind of in that kind of contemplative state. And mm. then you give an offering and then you have one more song at the end that's mm. loud and raucous to kind of take you out the doors until the next week. Mm. And I know in the eighties, especially when the secret movement came along, churches like Willow Creek and Saddleback, mm. you know, really emphasized the performance nature of it. Mm. And it became more of an experience that you would come to and, just rely on everybody on stage to give you yes. whatever content you were going to do. And the sermon was the focal point. Mm, yes. Um, yes. But in the last couple of years, I know our family has really embraced um, like the Episcopal and the Anglican tradition where mm. the sermon is not actually the focal point of the service. It's the Eucharist. Mm. It's mm. the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. Yes. And that is what is central to Mm. what it means to celebrate a resurrected Jesus. Mm. Mm. Because, you know, N.T. Wright says that when Jesus wanted to teach his disciples about himself, Mm. he didn't give them knowledge. He gave them a meal. Yes. Yes. And that meal is centered around a communal aspect to the faith not yes. just one person on stage leading. Mm. It's about the community. However yes. many people are gathered in a space, whether it's under a tree in Africa, in a cave in the Middle East, in mm. a high-rise 
building in Tokyo mm. or a typical church building in the West mm. or even in the East, mm. the focal point of the service should be around that communal meal where we're saying, mm. hey, Jesus was broken and poured out for us. Yes, We have to break ourselves open. We have to pour ourselves out for the sake of the world. Mm. Mm. And I think we've lost that. Yes. 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 Yeah, I I think so. It's one of those things where I think what we're both getting at is this, I mean, one of the longings, and perhaps there's many, um, but one of the longings is that sense for sacred community and the emphasis on the community, that, that very communal dimension, whereby our formation is found over a meal. And not just any meal, although I I think we'll both agree that that all meals have a sense of the sacred if we kind of allow it to. Um, mm-hmm. But but there's something in particular to a type of gathering whereby we can go eyeball to eyeball with people and say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. And whether that be in the more formal kind of Anglican church, high church, Episcopal church, whatever language you want to use for that type of tradition, or whether kind of a low church version of that, which Mm -hmm. just for some of our listeners is high church, low church language. I guess for lack of better words, we're talking high church would be more traditional, stereotypically Anglican, Catholic, Episcopal, that type of thing. Low church being more informal, um, kind of down to earth, so to speak. And there are good versions and bad versions of both, I, I think. Absolutely. But um, but nonetheless, um, yeah, and, and the, the low church version of that being you know, that maybe we, we gather in like a dinner church setting over a meal, and but we nonetheless pronounce blessing over each other. I, I think there's this longing for intentional kind of community in that sense. And I often find that at the moment – a lot of churches in the, particularly in the West, I, I, we're very service centric, if that makes yes. sense. I mean, yes, I'm not inherently absolutely. against like um, large gathering. In fact, I my little pet project is like I want to, I want to um, uh, rediscover how we might do large gatherings, but in a but re-engineer it or or redesign it in a much more kind of intentional way, so to speak. So I'm not inherently against kind of yes. a, a larger gathering setting. I just think, um, but when we put the whole weight of what it means to be quote unquote church quote on an hour and a half on a Sunday morning in what appears mm-hmm. to be a bit more like a miniature concert, especially in my tradition, then I think we're missing the mark of what the full life of, 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 of the community of God is. I mean, where, and, and in these, in these settings where the metric of faithfulness is not seen by whether or not, you know, you take Joe Blog or, or Jane Doe for a cup of coffee because they're having a down day as a as a metric of faithfulness to community. But rather, if you volunteer, you know, oh, are you greeting people at the door rather than perhaps discipling each other to be welcoming people, all of us? <laughs> yeah, right. what, what does that say about the condition of what it means to be church, what it means to be community? Right. So absolutely. I mean, there's, I think, you know, twenty one different one another's in scripture, and I mm. think. Um, they, a few of them get repeated. So I think, you know, sometimes the list I've heard is 21. Sometimes I've voice I've heard 39, but mm. whether it's 21 or 39, the point is that you can't do very many of those on a Sunday morning for an hour or an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Most of those one anotherings that were commanded to in the new Testament or encouraged to mm. those have to be done in the marketplace. Those have to be done 
mm. in in third spaces in public mm. spaces in mm. grocery stores in car mm. shops in markets mm. in mm. Uh, ball fields and sport in concert halls like mm. we've got to make the church kind of leave the building leave the comfort of a building and mm. and really see its expression out every day in the world being mm. the hands and feet of Jesus. I mean, I know mm. one thing I always said when I was pastoring a local church at mm. the end of every service, I would ask the congregation, I would say, who's the church? Mm. And, and I obviously had to teach them this, but I said, who's the church? And they all in unison said, said we are. Mm. And then my charge to them was let's go be the church. Mm. Mm. And, and, and I think that is, that being is as lost today because we've emphasized more doing than being. Mm. And we've kind of become mm. what we were so afraid of that we've seen in Hollywood or we've seen in, in other segments of society because in the 1950s, there was a sociologist named Marshall McLuhan and he always said the medium is the message. Like how you say things is as important as what you're saying. Mm. Um, but I think a lot of times in the church, um, we've we've taken the message, which is a beautiful mm. message for all people to include every person on earth in the mm. love of God. Mm. And we've made it about things that we like or things that we are comfortable with. Mm. And I think we have to set a longer table. I think we have to make faith more robust. We have to make the invitation really for everybody in every space of life mm. and not just for the people that show up to a particular mm. service at mm. a particular time. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, the, the picture that I've been reflecting over the, over the last 24 hours is, is it's a bit of a theological picture, but it is picture language nonetheless. And it's really grounded in this big picture belief or theological belief that it's not about getting people out of the earth, but bringing heaven to earth as the ultimate end goal. And in that sense, gravity works in our favor in that we're not trying, and this is the picture, obviously, in that we're not trying to get people quote unquote up, quote unquote, but rather there's a natural ebb and flow of the gravity of heaven coming down. Mm, And so then what would it mean to disseminate that into our workplaces, into our daily lives, into our relationship? I mean, really, it's about, I mean, it's funny because the title of the show, but it's really about kind of expanding our definition of of the kingdom of God. It's not about a Sunday morning per se. It's not also, it's also not, not about a Sunday morning as well. Like there's a, as I said, there's a space for temple gathering, but there's, there's a sense in which. Once that's intentionally designed and formatted in a particular way, we could then expand the definition of what it means to be the people of God. That still includes a radical, tight-knit community, but a tight-knit community that is for the world. Um, you know, when Jesus said that my kingdom of the kingdom is not of this world, it is certainly for this world. It, it's yes. for the redemption of the entire earth. Yes. societies, peoples, places, things. It's and, and so in that sense, when we work against the grain of the gravity of the kingdom of God, of not going somewhere else, but at somewhere else coming here, then I think we can learn as a people to relax better into doing the outside the box, outside the walls thinking around what it means to be the people of God. Like 
what what would it mean for Jesus to be king in the workplace? What would it mean for Jesus to be king mm-hmm. in this? And, and not even in a big grandiose way. And this is why I love that we started talking about C.S. Lewis because there was just right. a simple faithfulness there, right? It, it wasn't trying to be like, um, uh, it, so so just some context back in so here in Perth, Australia, where where a lot mm-hmm. of my listeners are. Um, we had this thing called Youth Alive. It still goes. And okay. and just for those who are listening up front, it like I'm not inherently against it. I think it's great. It's it's a youth mm. it's like a collective youth group movement where all the youth groups across Perth come together. It has a very Pentecostal mm. kind of vibe. It comes out of that tradition. Um okay. I love it. I love it for its yeah, kind of what it was I, I, I do love it. And I, I just want to preface saying that before I then launch into what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> the the one tendency though, the one tendency was the message they often sold the kids was around these like humongous big dreams, like big, big dreams. Like you're going to conquer the world and you're going to, you know, you're going to do these huge, you're going to be on the platform. You're going to, you're going to preach to 5,000 people like I am, you know, it, it didn't literally say it like that, but it was that very much that, that type of way. Um, whereas the simplicity of a heaven on earth outworked simple life that we see modeled in C.S. Lewis and, and the like is that it's actually not just about the big decisions. It's about a daily faithfulness. Majority of our life is spent in the mundane and right. a, a simple faithfulness of what it means to be the people. God isn't about the big grandiose things, though they are certainly important when the time comes to make wise Jesus-led, spirit-led decisions. But it's also how I treat my literal neighbor, my next-door neighbor, Absolutely. my left and to my right, you know? Absolutely. I mean, in in probably one of the more famous sermons that C.S. Lewis gave, Mm. um, it was at um, St. Mary's Church in Oxford, and it's called The Weight of Glory. Mm. And it's become kind of a famous speech, although it was a sermon. Um, And what what he says in that is he says that we've never met any mere mortal. That every mm. person that we interact with, every person that we marry, every person that we snub mm. is holier mm. than we can even imagine. And yes. if, if we were to really see them in their immortal glory, mm. we would either be so disgusted that we would turn away or we would be tempted to worship. Mm. Mm. And it's just so powerful when he says, you've never met a mere mortal because none of us were created for just mortality. We, we were designed for a life to go on beyond this physical world that we currently live with. Yes. And at another point, he says, if you simply just aim at earth, that's mm. all you get. But if you aim mm. at heaven, mm. and when he says mm. heaven there, he doesn't mean a geographical place, but he yes, literally means really. the place where God is mm. wherever that is yes, he says if yes. you aim at heaven you get heaven and you get earth thrown in mm. Um, mm. and you know a a restored renewed recreated garden of eden earth mm. not the current mm. one that mm. yes. is suffering because of climate change and because mm. of mm. different mm. things that we've done to the earth mm. yes and it's mm. just it's just incredible how we go through each day of our lives and we don't think about that reality. We don't think about the holiness of each person, the sacredness of each person, each life. Mm. And, 
I mean, you and I both are living in a world right now where there's so much political division. Mm. There's so much racial division. Mm. I mean, I could spend an hour talking about just the racial deaths and the racial tension that we've had in the last month here mm. in California. Yes, yes, with yes. The, with the anti-Asian crimes and mm. with what happened to that poor young man in Memphis that was killed mm. by those five um also black officers. He was a black mm. young man mm. and he was killed by five black officers and mm. how we treat each other in this world mm. has reached a point where I've never seen it. And it's indicative of the problem that we have in the church because, you know, Dallas Willard once said that the church is a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm. And you said something earlier about the deeper and wider. And I love that, this podcast is called Deeper and Wider because I think so often in church, we focus on the width of the church, how big it is, how, how mm-hmm. grand it is, how big the budgets are, how, mm-hmm. how many seats we can get in an auditorium. Mm-hmm. And I think far more important is the roots, how yes. our roots are, how are we rooted and established in love as Paul mm-hmm. you know, challenges the early church to be, or are we rooted in, in racism? Are we rooted in a discipleship that just wants Mm. to check a box on a Sunday morning for an hour and then live however we want to live throughout Mm -hmm. the week? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this is kind of getting to the heart of what we're, we're talking about. I mean, we're, and I think in a lot of ways we, we are expressing a particular lament, um, Mm -hmm. for the Western church at the moment. And I want to be careful not to imply that, you know, I have it figured out. You know, I, it's, it's something that I've always wanted to cautiously remind myself just to keep some humble pie <laughs> right in my Absolutely. mouth. And that is, and that is that we are the church and I am the church. And so even though I'm in an interesting space at the moment, we'll obviously talk about that in a bit. Um, there, there is a nonetheless sense that I am mysteriously part of that, which we call the body of Christ. And so, like I got to do my work as well. Like um, there right. are ways in which I'm failing, but but nonetheless, with those qualifiers rightfully qualified, I think th- there is a more, I, I guess you can say a more institutional sense, or perhaps a more cultural sense, in which both you and me, and quite frankly, I think many people, um, I, I don't think we're alone in this. I think this is a no. very, in fact, even church leaders. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I, I'm sure you, you're good friends of pastors. I'm sure they have a having the same conversations even with their own internal conflict or internal angst of their own institutions that they are themselves propping up in a way. Oh, right? absolutely. It, you know, like it's their career, right? And so it's hard yeah. because it's like if they well, pivot to to more risky directions around discipleship, I mean, let's be honest, they want that paycheck and food on the table because they've got kids themselves. It's like, oh. oh absolutely. I mean, yeah. Right now it is probably the most difficult job I think in the world because mm-hmm. – at least according to the recent Barna research that's been done, mm. uh, it's about 45% of, of current pastors and priests mm. want to quit and just do anything else besides work mm. uh, for the church that they're working at right now. And mm. the statistics are pretty staggering in terms of the levels of anxiety, the levels of depression, the levels of addictions, whether it's alcohol or pornography, or mm-hmm. um, just the temptation to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, steal money, or mm-hmm. or or just other things that pastors are facing 
mm. because they're just in an untenable situation, mm. no matter which side of the aisle politically they're on mm. or which side of the aisle they're on in terms of race relations right mm. now, pastors are just being attacked for wanting to be themselves. And many mm. pastors don't feel like they can be themselves. They have to sort of put on a face and put on an image that everything's good and they don't struggle with depression or they don't struggle with anxiety or they don't struggle with um, even questions or doubts of their own faith. Yeah. Um, they have to be um, kind of shown as having it all together and not having any cracks in the armor mm. because everything is so fragile right now. Mm. Mm. I, I think what you said is so important as, as a point of empathy that you know, even for myself who doesn't work in formal church ministry that, you know, these are still real people. And, and like, I do think there are pastors who are thinking deeply and reflectively about the things we're talking about, right? Like it Absolutely. would be, it would be too arrogant of us to be like, oh, the church out there as if um, they themselves aren't asking these big, big questions. And you're right, right. The, what that might do when it's hard to pivot in that direction, um, perhaps because of something larger than themselves, which is a scary thought that maybe there's like some sort of cultural zeitgeist in the Western church that has to be, to that that maybe that's the deeper thing that has to be kind of quote unquote exercised quote out of out of the Western Church in particular because they yeah. themselves are perhaps swept up and I not sure how really to get out thought. of it. You know, yeah. like maybe themselves are like, yeah, we know it's about discipleship, we know it's all yep. about programs. Yep. Uh, but dang it, this is this is the building we've got. This is the budget. This is the loan <laughs> that we've taken out. Yeah, I can't just the- you know <laughs> if I sell it, will there still be a congregation? You know, a, a big yep. thing I've seen is like. You know, maybe they go if if we downsize in a more discipleship way, will the will the will the people with young kids want to come to our church if our quote unquote kids church isn't that kid churchy because yep. we're trying to meet more together? I don't know. There's these. I'm just yeah. throwing different different factors into the to the equation no, to create a degree of empathy here, right? Um, the Christian industrial complex that has been built in especially North America, but even parts of, of Western Europe, even parts mm. of Eastern Europe now, mm. yeah, um, yeah, because those lines are blurred. And I've seen, because we lived, my family and I, we lived in Africa for four years and we saw so mm. much of the African church want to adopt what they saw in America. And the adage is that when America coughs, Africa gets a fever. Mm, and mm, mm. it's really true in terms of the influence of not only technology with smartphones, but mm. with church, with how we do church, how we do business, how we do just general culture, social media, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. But there is a predominantly um, difficult narrative that we still propagate in the church is that um, we have to look like everybody else we have to look like industry Mm. we have to look like business we have to look Mm. like this well-run organization where the pastor is the ceo yeah and the problem is that even the pastor is not the shepherd of that church yeah Yeah. jesus is the shepherd of the church Mm. And, Mm. and no matter what church you go to within a christian tradition it already has a shepherd yes and it's jesus yeah and yeah. he cares way more about the global church than one local pastor ever can 
or mm. should. Mm. And I think we have to take the pressure off of pastors and pastors have to take the pressure off themselves to be mm. the shepherd, mm. the great shepherd for the church, because that's a role that they were never meant to be in. Yeah, totally. So obviously we're expressing our lament, but what are some, I'm cautious to to discuss this because I don't want to sound like we've got the answers. This is much more of a conversation than and there's a oh, figured out narrative. But I right. do want to pivot yeah. towards going like, okay, like we uh, we have this collective lament that I think you, me, and probably many, many, many Christians, as well as Christians who are pastors in more formalized settings, are getting that. But I I do nonetheless want to, with perhaps some appropriate fear and trepidation, lest we think we've got it figured out. But yeah, let's I don't know. Let's brainstorm. <laughs> Yeah. what's what's the way forward <laughs> because because well i think like, you really hit yeah. it on the head when you said lament i, I think mm-hmm. at least in in our american context mm. we haven't been taught how to lament mm. i mean i probably have heard one sermon on the book of lamentations my entire christian life mm. And I don't even know if it was a full sermon. I think they just plucked one verse out of Lamentations. Mm. I think there's a verse about, you know, great is your faithfulness. And morning by morning, I think that there's a particular verse, and I could be wrong, but I think that there's one line of Lamentations that gets used in a hymn or a worship song that usually gets put mm. into a sermon. But I just think as as Westerners, especially, we don't, know how to lament we don't know how to hold mm. the hard reality of life with mm. the truth that god is still in mm. control and mm. um i think we've got to get back to that mm. posture of being able to hold in one hand the joy of the world and hold in the other hand mm. um, the suffering and mm. the the difficulty and you know, oftentimes the illustration in the in the Hebrew scriptures is you have the time of wilderness and you have the time of the promised land. And mm. most Christians today in the world want to exist as if they only have ever been in the promised land mm. because of mm. what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, mm. where I believe we are more wilderness people mm still struggling with that liminal space of we've left slavery, we've left Egypt, but mm. we're not quite yet in the promised land. We're still mm. in that not yet, but not coming future. Mm. Yes. It's so beautiful and that will change everything about reality for us. Mm. Mm. And, and I think that is one way forward is that we need to, gather people together and learn how to lament, learn how to share the hard things mm. about uh, life yes. and, and yeah. hold those in an open space and, and let grief and let tears and let laughter all flow together. Mm. And, and look, the, the, and tell me if I'm wrong in, in saying this, it, it sounds like that the, the underlining longing behind what you're articulating when we speak of lament is actually just, perhaps as, as one way of thinking forward, the ability to reconnect with the realness of our lives, which includes the tears, yes. like the tears, um, the hardships, as well as the, the joys. It, it's really a call to be like, let's be 
let's be re-present to to what's happening yes. in, in our moments. And maybe that's a starting point as we kind of think forward of what it means to be the church in this in this decade, so to speak. Absolutely. And in our context is like, hey, what would it be like to rather do let's and let's just use sermons as an example, rather than just to do sermons that seem quite abstract, like, oh, we've learnt the Greek of this particular mm-hmm. word. Um which is fine. I'm all for, you know, good, good, solid teaching. But, you know, we've learned, oh, we've learned the Greek, but we don't even know how to apply it to our right. actual, our right. contexts, our lives, the tough questions, um, you know, some Joe blog struggling with, you know, particular mental illnesses, but we don't even talk about mental illness in some of our churches or, yes. or there's, um, or we, we don't really know how faith and work as in like vocation work, um, that, that, you know, like workplace stuff, how that fits together, you know, so we're not even discussing kind of the realness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the context of the day-to-day lives that we're living. So, so lament, yes. And would I be right in saying that that lament is, a, it, it's a way of articulating that we're not really connecting at the moment. And actually we've got to find ways to actually oh, connect yeah. to what's happening in our daily it lives. Is... And maybe that's a place to start. Lamenting, proper lamenting, mm. is a through line to redemption. Mm. 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 Like when we can properly lament the fact that we are all broken people living in a broken world, mm. and we have a right now presence of the kingdom of God, but also mm. a not mm. yet future hope that we cling to kingdom of God. Yeah. That is the thing that can save us on an everyday basis. Mm, wow. Because wow. oftentimes Christians think of salvation as just a one-time event where they mm. went somewhere and they prayed a prayer and they ticked a box and they're good. And they look at Jesus as a ticket to heaven. Mm, mm. And they do that because they've grown up in an economic consumeristic culture that's told Mm. them that if they pay their money and they go to church, then the product that they get is Jesus. Mm. (laughs) But when we can look at the, the long-term, the, the long obedience in the same direction Mm. mentality that Eugene Peterson lived his life with Mm. the idea that we can hold that space Mm for the long game versus just the short reward, mm. it changes everything. Yes. Yes. Uh, I really like that. I really like that line of thinking and, and perhaps then lament. It, that is the appropriate place to start because I think it also creates a sense of realism. Like life can be hard. Like don't sugarcoat it. <laughs> like, right. You know, like let's just be honest. Um, the kingdom of God isn't fully implemented in the sense no. that Jesus has returned and no more death or tears or sadness and grief and pain and the garden city of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Like, like that's that's right. to come. And that hope grounds us to right. to do what the apostles said and, and you know, do do good works into the world, knowing that our labor is not in vain because it's all heading there. But that has to coexist with the reality of the way things are. And until we give full stock of the way things are, we actually don't know what we then are to do next. Because if we don't know what the problem is, how do we know how to outwork a solution? Right. Right. Like, and when I mean that, when I mean, what I mean by that, and just to give a practical example, like we need to know what's 
wrong with a particular part of our lives or a particular part of our community to then, and which includes deep listening to the pains, which is a lament, mm -hmm. right? And, yes. and sitting alongside that to then out of the place of tears to then come together through spirit led discussion and prayer to then go right out of a place of, of deep connection with pain. How might we bring the promise of the kingdom? What does it now look like to outwork that? But we have to go through the first part of that arc, which is lament in order mm -hmm. then to outwork um, going, okay, now what might it look like for Jesus to be king in X, Y, Z area? Knowing that even that, even that little um, project of God won't be fully realized until he returns. But we nonetheless right. are like people chasing the rainbow. You know, the rain we never get the rainbow. I the mean, rainbow rushes towards us at the end of time, but we still well, run and we still move forward, right? But Absolutely. But yeah. And one of the things that I constantly have to die to is my own mm. ego. Yes, yes. Well, it you starts, know, and, it does. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Richard Rohrer says in mm. his book, Following Upward, that mm. the skills and the things that we build in the first half of our life, mm. you know, our ego, our pride, our hubris, our skills, mm. our abilities, our talents, all of those things are incapable of sustaining us through the second half of our life. Mm, mm. And that first half of life really is our false self. That isn't really mm. who we truly are. Mm, mm. The second half of life, once we reach, you know, age 35 to 40, mm. and we start realizing that it's not really about us mm. and it never was. And mm. we can lean in with vulnerability, with authenticity, with humility mm. and say, there is so much that I haven't learned. One of my friends Shauna Nyquist, mm. um, her mm. latest mm. book was called, I guess I haven't learned that yet. And mm. it came out of them as a family leaving the place that they grew up and knew in mm. the Midwest and they moved to New York. And all of a sudden the life that they were building in New York was so very different. And they learned all kinds of new and amazing things about their lives and each other and their kids mm. that their mantra as a family was and still is to this day, I guess I haven't learned that yet. So mm. that every day they're waking up with a curiosity and a invitation to mm. wonder mm. and dream. And I think we have to recapture that oh, in the that. church. We have to recapture that yes. for living into our true self because yes. I think Roar is the one that said, um, you know, nothing is wasted. Yes. That, that nothing yes. we go through in our life is a mm. wasted mm. experience. Everything can be an opportunity to lean into something we don't know and a mm. new place that we can go. And again, coming back to C.S. Lewis, mm. he at one point said, you're never too old to set a new goal or dream a new dream. Oh, I love that. Yes, yes. Oh, I love that. And I think, and I love the the language of dreaming. And of course, based on what we've already talked about, we're not talking about dreaming and the grandiose, like we, you know, the youth alive conquering the world sense, but actually right. what does it look like to, to dream a dream in the context of how we love our neighbors? What does it look like to dream Absolutely. a dream in the context of your neighborhood or my neighborhood? Um, over here in East Vic Park, specifically in Perth, right? Um, and, and what does it look like to dream a dream? What, what's the dream of the kingdom? And right. 
And yeah, what does that dream look like in the context of our church? And I love the the step one. Not that we want to formalize this in some sort of neat package per se, but I love right. the the step one is is the start of the lament, which is what we've been right. talking about. Like we've been grieving kind of the way church is at the moment. Um, yes. And I, I I and I think we're coming from a place of of recognizing that we are part of the problem ourselves to some extent, and also a place of empathy that we know people who are pastors in this world who themselves are kind of going through this kind of internal and institutional reckoning within themselves and within the the places they occupy. But then, yeah, beyond the scope of listening to the pain of of the failure of, it's probably too strong of a word, but, but at least a type of reckoning within Western Christianity in our contexts, we now got to go, hey, okay, we're, we're listening to the griefs and we're listening to the pain and part of the pain, part of the lament of people in the church world is is a failure of institution um, mm-hmm. in the American context and a little yes. bit in Australia, but not as much. There's nationalism as well, like yes. Christian nationalism, oh. in, uh, yes, which is a, which is a big here. which is a big big thing over there. I'm not saying it isn't here, but it's, it's probably just a little bit different here. Um, but but more broadly in the Western church, it's this. Um, the failure of institution around, you know, things like abuse in the churches, the failure of leadership, uh, the failure of pivoting towards marketing techniques that so preoccupied with with numerical growth. And like, you know, yes, the early church added to their number daily. So I'm not inherently against new disciples, but as long as they become disciples and not just mere, I pray the prayer converts, right? right. <laughs> but like, so in line of this lament, now we're going, okay, we... We we are now there's we're starting to discern a longing underneath this lament, and one of the ones we talked about was community. Probably another one is is around kind of deep, deep almost catechism like teachings of how to be the people of God again in in yes. our current context. It's probably contemplative and charismatic practices. Um, so yes. we it's not just theoretical; we're actually informed. So what are, what what are we longing for, and and how might we all pastors in the institutional church as well. So that way it's on us versus them, but like how might we all come together and be church differently? Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying we're going to figure it out in this right. podcast, but I don't know. I think we can start dreaming like, yeah, what, what, what is the way, what are some of the ways forward? I don't know. What are your, your thoughts? I, I don't know. I'm just pointing I mean, out. I know there. again, because um, I've had just a lot of great mentors in life that have mm. really pushed me back to the ancient voices and looking at the mm. rabbis and looking at, you mm. know, the ancient near East and how they mm. would go about mining information. It wasn't in the Greek platonic mm. ways of question of, of just didactic truth that you could boil yeah. down to three simple points that all begin with the same letter. <laughs> it, yeah. it was a series of asking questions and wrestling with things and saying, mm. I don't know the answer to this and I don't know how this is going to be resolved, but th- there's a blessing in the mystery. There's a blessing in the not knowing. I mean, rabbis, mm. when they would come to a particular scripture that they didn't understand, they would, mm. they would start laughing out loud and just throw their arms in the air and, and say, bless us bless us because we don't mm-hmm. understand and someday god may choose to reveal to wow. us what this means yeah. and until yeah. then we're just gonna sit with the mystery and sit with the wonder and doesn't mean we won't engage with it it doesn't mean we won't keep wrestling with it and mm. and talking about it and maybe coming up with different ways to interpret it 
but there was a childlike innocence to it and mm-hmm. a wonder that I think we've lost in the modern church today because we're so addicted to certainty. Mm. You know, Pete mm. Enns wrote a great book called The Sin mm. of Certainty. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. and, and just the idea that we are so wrapped up in having certain answers to things that we were never meant to have answers to. And obviously, yes, there are things that we have answers to mm, in scripture sure. and, and that's not what I'm talking about here, but I'm 100%. talking about yeah, that, yeah, I, I that embrace yeah. of the mystery and the embrace of questions. And I think our communities have to be places of questions. Mm, um, mm. I know several years ago, I went to an event with Brian McLaren and after he spoke, he did a Q and R answer. Oh yeah, Q and R session, not a Q and A session, because it wasn't mm. question and answers; it was mm. questions and responses. Mm. And mm. I like that posture much better because I think a lot of times pastors are expected by their churches and expected by themselves to have the last word on something, mm. and mm. I think it should maybe be the first word. Mm. Maybe it's mm. just the start of a conversation that happens all throughout the week. Yes. Yeah. No, I like that. I mean, it's um, it the paradigm I'm thinking through right now is is you know the kingdom of God being both here now and not yet, but then so uh, just just explain it for our listeners just so they understand because we've both used this phrase like the kingdom of being here now and not yet is a kind of a bit of a theological phrase that basically says in a nutshell that Jesus has come into the world and so there's a sense in which the kingdom is present and amongst us um but it's not yet fully here because jesus hasn't returned yet and so it's here it is now but it's not yet like there's more to come and so applying this to the question of like questioning and knowledge i i hear your i hear the the good qualifier made earlier it's not to say there's no answers but just to apply this paradigm it's like there are some here now answers in that jesus has said things about himself and the way to be in the world so obviously we can say certain things but there is a not yet component in that we don't have it all figured out or there's always a rehashing of how we apply love of enemies for example in unique ethical and situational context that we have to discuss um, absolutely i mean one one example i did on the podcast and i, I i'm i just want to be cautious to my listeners a little bit of a, a trigger warning um so i talked about um with a particular lady by the name of erica hammonds in my previous episodes we talked about um, domestic family violence in, in the church context. Mm. And um, I, I had the opportunity and I got her permission earlier to to ask this question before I asked a question on the show. And, and the question was, okay, what does it look like to to love our enemy who is the abuser? Because we neither, we don't want to mm. go down the, the problematic, stereotypical, ultra-conservative pathway and become a doormat to to horrible, horrible things. In, yes. in one's life, but they're not. But they're neither do we want to just go pretend that um, love of enemy doesn't exist. And she came up with a very rich answer that that neither pivoted towards the problematic notion of a type of enemy love that that keeps you in a dangerous and hostile place. But then neither was it the other extreme of like let's not wrestle with this. She talked about how to wrestle. But uh, now I'm only saying that not to go down a rabbit hole per se. I just say that to say that. Um, that's perhaps what we mean by the the Q and R. It's like we're we 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 still believe that there are certain things that Jesus said, but we're going to be in rich dialogue about what that means in our current situations, in our current contexts, in our current lives, 
because we want to be a disciples who don't pretend that we exist in the first century. We exist in the the, the here and now. We we do have to kind of outwork these larger than life questions in our own context, so to speak. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, and and I love Jesus for this. He he asks so many questions. Um, he doesn't just give answers. Uh, I, I will be honest, just 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 to be upfront upfront with you, Matt. Like I do probably still have a little bit of a traditional tendency towards answers, just because I think Jesus still does say things. I mean, he still gives a whole sermon oh, <laughs> on the mount, yeah, and, I, abso- and I absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I do think yeah. some of his the way he does questions is more of a form of teaching as opposed how to teach yes. as opposed to like. Uh, yeah, like I'll just I'll just say one thing, and then we can we can spin it if you want. It's up to you. Yeah. Um, but but like when um, when Peter asks, oh, who do you, when Jesus asks Peter, well, who do you say I am? You know, when people say, oh, some say you're Elijah, or some say you're a prophet, some say, well, who do you think I am? Um, Jesus asks a question, but then when Peter responds, he does actually go, ah, you are yes, great. Yes. Well, he doesn't say great job, but he does affirm. Yeah. His answer in the side. He doesn't go, oh, that's that's a really cool opinion <laughs> that you think right. I'm the Messiah. It's like that's just one interpretation, man. <laughs> like, he still has a uh, an answer to it. But uh, sorry, I, I only yeah, say no, that absolutely. to to say that he, there's probably he this. Peter. Yeah, there's probably he here now, not yet. But but to but to affirm what you said earlier, I still think it's true though that we need these rich discussions. So what does it look like to love our neighbors in? 2023 whether it be in san diego or um, perth um well you you get what i mean does that does that make sense yeah 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 and so and so maybe that is one of the ways for like we do have to recontextualize quite frankly i mean it it sounds so basic in a way um but i think i think but and actually i think it's hopeful that it's a basic thing it means we don't have to strain our minds too much we can just go no Okay, let's let's observe what the questions that are being asked. Let's observe what it means to live in this context, and let's find ways to be faithful followers of Jesus around where we're located. And to well, and and for many people, I think the barrier is they don't want proximity mm. to the other. Mm. They they don't mm. want to truly be living among the poor, the marginalized, the broken, mm. the addicted. Mm the strung mm. out, the suicidal, um, mm. Mm. the addict, because if they get too close, they will realize that they are more like that person than they want to admit. Mm. Mm. Tell and me I, more. I think, Cause I mean, I think, cause you, you, think you could probably speak distance. into this more than I could. Yeah. There's a distance that want, that people want to keep from people mm. that are not like them. Yes. Because yeah. then they feel like they're insulated from really caring mm. and having that empathy and having compassion that Jesus had. Mm. I mean, when Jesus had compassion on the crowds, mm. I mean, the literal is that his his insides were all knotted up, like yes. al- almost to the point of causing him physical pain, perhaps. Yes. yes. Because he had such compassion on them because he had formed every one of them as people. Yes. And I think when we as the church or when we as Christians try to keep that distance from problems or situations or people that are not like us, that don't vote like us or don't think like mm. us or don't live mm. economically like we live, 
Mm. We lose that ability to incarnate ourselves like Jesus did. I mean, one of the most mm. beautiful translations of John 1.14 that I've ever seen is in the message mm. where it says the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Yes. Yeah. And we don't want to move into the neighborhoods that we don't like. Mm. Mm. In fact, mm. we gentrify the neighborhoods that are struggling and we feel like if we put in a Pilates studio and a pokey place mm. and a, you know, yoga studio and a, Mm. a red box, mm. then that place is all of a sudden going to be fixed and then everyone can enjoy it. Well, mm. we've mm. just displaced the five families that lived in those spaces mm. to turn those places into mm. places that upscale people want to come to. And yes. And so I think we've got to get back to proximity mm. to the other and proximity to people that are, that are maybe our shadow side because I think it's it's that shadow side that really is us. It's mm, the dark parts mm. of our heart that we don't want to admit that we have. Mm, mm. And when we can just be open and vulnerable and say, well, you know what? I struggle with these things too. Mm, yes. And I'm just going to get closer to you so that we mm. together mm. can come to the table and mm. receive the bread and the wine. Mm. That is a beautiful thing. Yes, yes. And I think you're touching on something that could almost be our second dream in a way. So if the first dream is like allowing discipleship to be radically outworked in our context, or as John Mark Comer has often eloquently put it in his sermons, uh, what would Jesus do if he were me, which is an addendum right. to, the, to the classic WWJD, which I love exactly. the addendum because it's yeah, not abstract. I love it too. You know, love what would that. Jesus do if he were me? But I think the second thing that you're pointing out um is that whatever it looks like for this the for us as the the body of Christ the the church and in, in this this time we find ourselves in is that we have to also be in we have to be mindful of the poor and I, I think there's a difference between the church having a full blown like I don't think every church has to be in a poor neighborhood. Right. Um, like, I mean, obviously we want the body of Christ there as well. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the church can be anywhere, like everywhere, um, whether it be in richer suburbs or poorer suburbs, but we should always be mindful of the poor. We should always have the poor in front of mind. So if I do find myself in a richer context or in a wealthier context, I should, well, I mean, first of all, I should question that <laughs> because maybe there's something Jesus would say about, about our relationship to materiality and the like. Um, but what I think what I'm trying to get at is that, even if I work in the marketplace, um, there has to be ways in which we go, okay, how do we seek the common good for the poorest of the poor? How do we, right. in in our contexts, keep the poor in the front of our mind and not just as something that's kind of far, far away in the abstract, but that we have some version of proximity to that. And I oh, think that absolutely. does have to be outworked as per community, as per yeah. discipleship, as per each individual, but there has to be something that as we become neighborly, we also don't forget the particular neighbors in our neighborhood, whether we be in lower, upper, middle, middle class suburbs. What are the people who are around that we tend to avoid because there is a bit of an otherness to them in relation to ourselves, um, which often are yes. the poor? Yes. And then what does it look like to, in wise ways, um, and and two ways that are sensitive to where we're at on our discipleship journey. You know, not everyone's at at this point yet, but to nonetheless go, 
how might I even learn to love this person? And right. so, and so perhaps for like this conversation, it's a question of like the, the church that, that we too are also in, in a, in a mysterious way, perhaps not institutionally at the moment, that's a whole other conversation, <laughs> but, but nonetheless in, um, that whatever it looks like, it's to also be mindful of the poor at, right. at, at, at some capacity, at least. Yeah, I, I'm I'm reading um, Bono's memoir right now called Surrender, mm. and mm. it's just been fascinating because not only am I learning all kinds of things about how the band U2 started and and journeyed through those first few years where I would listen to their music on the radio or on cassette tape, but social media didn't exist, so I didn't I didn't have access to the stories that mm. that they were experiencing and things that they were experiencing, but Early on in their work, you know, Bono, he writes in, in, in the book, he says, God is with the poorest and most vulnerable in the mm. slums and the cardboard boxes where the poor play in the mm. doorway as we step over the divine on our way to work in the silence of a mother who has unknowingly infected her child with a virus that will mm. take both of their lives. Mm. God is in the cries heard under the rubble of yes. war in the bare hands digging for air. God is with yes. the terrorized. Mm, um, he's at mm. sea with the desperate clinging on to drowning dreams. God's with the refugee. Um, mm. God is with the poor and the vulnerable and God is with us if we are with them. Yes. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I think, I think it's one of those things that reminds me of course, and I'm sure he's riffing on in a wink and a nudge way. He's riffing on, I think Matthew 25, is it 25, 20? I'm, it I'm terrible at yes. quoting, but yes, yep. it, it's like, what, what, what is, what is the mystery of, of ultimate judgment? It, it isn't necessarily in saying the prayer, though I'm not inherently against that being a beginning of a discipleship journey. Um, but right. it's, it's ultimately outworked in, in one's love for Jesus. Do we then start to see the face of the other, in particular the poor, and see Jesus in them? Because as, as Jesus says in that, that kind of very confronting text, um, you know, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked. Uh, and yeah, and how did we treat treat those people? Yes. Because of course, the people go, "Well, when do we see you like that?" It's like, well, when you treated those people, that's how you're ultimately treating me. And of course, it worked in the vice versa, right? With with those who didn't treat people like that. So, what does it say to us? It's a very confronting verse, but one I think we should reckon with for sure. What, what, what does it look like to actually do that? And I, so, I think in the context of this conversation, then. If the first first point of dreaming is around um, deep, tight-knit community around a table, if the second point is kind of deep catechism-like teaching but in the context of learning to rehash the teachings of Jesus in our own context and have rich dialogue and discussion around that, and if the third thing is to be mindful that as we even do these things, we have to keep the poor in the front of our mind. What are some right. other things? I'm just cautious of time. I do have to finish soon. Yeah. But what are some other things that we can perhaps dream together? And maybe we can have a conversation another time as well and continue this. But but yeah, what are some other things that we're dreaming for? So we've obviously got the tight-knit community um, coming around the table in that sense. We've got the kind of rich dialogue, catechism-like teachings as we rehash the teachings of Jesus in our context. We have to, and number three, we're engaging with the poor in some capacity. What's, what are some other things do you think we have to kind of be in these, in these times that we find ourselves in? I mean, I think that at the end of the day, for me, um, 
knowing myself, knowing my own kind of darkness, my own soul has mm. really helped me understand mm. other people more. Yeah. And honestly, I think um, different tools like the Enneagram mm. Um, mm. have mm. have been really helpful to mm. understand my core motivations, my core fears, my core desires, mm. and the motivations, fears, and desires of other people as well. And mm. and I know we don't have time to really get into it right mm. now, but um, that's one of the one of the courses that I've developed mm. for the the organization that I just recently started called Cardia Community. Yes, yes. Please talk um, about that. Please talk about yeah. that. Yeah. So I came out of 2020 uh, leaving uh, a church that I was the senior pastor at for four years and even had you come and preach um, at mm. our church one, one Sunday that you were here and um, just felt burned out, felt broken, mm. felt like the church had kind of um, – chewed me up and spit me out, to be honest, mm. and just went through a dark time of a couple of years of mm. uh, just kind of wrestling with my own faith and and my own call as a pastor and came out of that on the other side because of the mercy of Jesus and got a renewed hope to care for pastors that have been struggling for, for many years without someone to care for them. And so uh, started Cardia Community. Uh, it's mm. K-A-R-D-I-A. It's the Greek word for heart. And our, yeah, right. our, our mission is to really care for the hearts and minds of pastors. Mm. And um, so this this winter, we're, we're beginning, this, this month, we're beginning some different learning cohorts. One is going to be called Leading from a Healthy Soul. Mm. Um, mm. Just, you know, some looking at some internal and external pressures mm. of being mm. a pastor, of being a leader. Uh, one is on the Beatitudes. Um, mm, mm. A friend of mine, Mark Scandrat, has created some beautiful material yes. uh, called The mm. Ninefold Path Around the Beatitudes. And mm. that's going to be one of our courses. And the third one that we're offering is on the Enneagram and Spiritual Formation. Mm. And mm. the Enneagram has become a tool that has really helped me mm. and so many others understand mm. who we are as people, who we are as global citizens. Yes, and how yeah. it yeah. affects our spiritual formation. Because mm. once we know our core motivations and our core fears, then we can really lean into who God has made us and and how yes. we can love and care for everyone in the world. Mm. I love that, and I'm going to obviously have links to your website, um, and you will be starting the podcast soon. So I'll get people onto that when that when that gets off the ground. And I just think that's so important. And I think what you're touching on, and obviously this is relating to pastors. And what I love about this conversation we're having is that I'm speaking to the bridge builder between this little radical me over here in the corner who isn't in any formal church-based ministry and who's like going like, we need to do church differently. <laughs> like, <it's laughs> down with the institution, you know. But, but, but I love that you are still in conversation with church partners, uh, pastors in these spaces absolutely, and, and actually finding ways to kind of move forward in terms of their own spiritual health. And 
I, even though it's obviously over in the US, I still nonetheless want to get people from Australia to hear of this amazing work because there might be fine ways to nonetheless connect, whether that's um, online, of course, if there's some courses online, um, or whether that's in the context of perhaps even one day them going to a retreat over in the US, or dare I say, one in Perth. Um, well, <laughs> we, are, we are definitely going to be having uh, some Cardia community retreats in Australia. I've already yes. connected with uh, awesome. Other, a couple other pastors, both in Sydney and Praise in God. Perth and yes, Melbourne. Yeah. That yes. so I'm hoping to come over at some point in the next couple of oh, years. Awesome! Yeah, do um, a tour, and you're going to be included. Oh, on that's that wonderful! Team with us as yes, well. Yes, yes. Uh, that that's very kind. I can be the radical renegade who's like on the the outside of the inside circle. You know, <laughs> you know, you know that metaphor that's where right, there's a circle, right. but I'm on the edge of it. Like I'm in, right. but not quite. You know, when it comes to church world, because I'm not in that space. But I think what what's and perhaps before we finish up because um, I just do want to I just want to name something in that bit of that spill you gave and that is if the first thing around dreaming for a better future is well I think the, the first thing that I, I forgot to address when I gave the little little list earlier was of course we do start with that lament because it 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 allows us to name what's happening but then as we dream it's like okay well we need rich community again and it can't it has to go beyond a Sunday. Um, absolutely it has to, we we need rich catechism like teaching again that that has a that finds that finds deep discussions of how to rehash that in our context through yes. a and r like way and there's uh being mindful of the poor and i think this fourth one that you're kind of naming whether explicitly but i think you're naming it and that is like deep spiritual practices like we Absolutely. Like, like it's and because it, it's and I love the work you're doing because it, it passes certainly need this on that soul care level, and it's also that a generalized thing for all followers of Jesus that Definitely. we can't do any of this big work. Or I mean, I, I don't even want to use the word big because once again, I don't want to grandiose it in the youth life sense. But right. we can't do the work that we do of neighborliness or workplace neighborliness or, or seeking the common good in our own local contexts unless there's an inner life that's fostered, unless there's a life Absolutely. of God, or, is, or in the words of uh, Brother Lawrence, practicing the presence of God and, finding, and finding the ways to, um, in the words of Jesus, you know, abide with Jesus. And so these rich teachers, yourself that I'm naming among them in the work that you're doing, but then also, of course, alongside the brilliant minds of people like C.S. Lewis, you know, people like Dallas Willard, Eugene yes. Peterson, Trish Harrison, um, Trish uh, Harrison Warren, um, and many other brilliant, brilliant yep. um, spiritual thinkers. I think. Yeah, we um, can't we can't give what we don't have. If we if we absolutely. lead from an empty well, absolutely. then we're leading with nothing. Absolutely, and I think just for our listeners, just so they don't walk away kind of eye rolling, going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," you're talking about reading the Bible or whatnot. I'm like, "Oh, no, 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 no." <laughs> I'm talking about something like really deeply, like contemplative like I, i'm yes. cautious to use the word jesus zen because of the connotations of zen <laughs> right, but th right. there's a sense in which in the words of mark sayers a pastor over in melbourne like what would it mean to become a non-anxious presence like, what absolutely would it mean that our lives on a lifelong journey become so centered into the heart and will of god that we actually give out of a space of union with god but I don't want to leave with the final word. Do you have a final word for us? I do. Today? Um, and yes. I'm actually not even going to speak my own words. I'm going to finish with the last section of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Mm. 
And this is what he says. He says, keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has ever died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Mm. Wow. Thank you, Mr. Matthew Nash. This has been an absolutely, absolutely wonderful chat with you today. I'm so happy to have had it. Oh, Nathan, this has been such a joy for me. And we've been, we've been friends for several years now, but I just so respect you as a theologian, as a young, passionate follower of Jesus who cares desperately for the world and for everything in this world. And it has just been such a joy to see uh, your journey continue and uh, God use you in every place and space that you find yourself in. Oh, thank you. Those are very kind words. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to Deeper and Wider. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe and share far and wide. If you want to get to know me, then follow me on Instagram at Nathan underscore Forster or look me up at NathanForster.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next time.